0: I majored in media studies in college, pretty intent on going into journalism when I graduated. Unfortunately, about halfway through college, the recession hit, and that was about the same time that ad spend was shifting from news organizations and news sites over to digital websites like Facebook and Google, who now own an enormous total collective ad spend. The business model for a lot of journalism outlets collapsed, and what was a competitive industry before became very difficult to enter after the fact. hindsight, I think my media studies degree, I thought at the time that those degrees were going to prepare me for a career as a reporter, but I actually think they were better preparation for what I do now as a research analyst, because that type of education primes you to look at a market, find gaps within that market, ask critical questions about the status quo, and then give solutions for what to do differently. And I see a lot of parallels between my work as an analyst here and what I did academically. And so in hindsight, insight that humanities education was great preparation for a career in tech.
1: Hello, Derek Bernard here, producer of the Hacker Noon podcast. Today I sit down for a discussion with Hacker Noon contributing author Lauren LaFeo. Her story is interesting. Armed with only a liberal arts degree, she managed to find her way into and become successful in tech. In addition to her writing credits, she served as an advisor for Women's Startup Challenge Europe, the continent's largest venture capital competition for women-led startups. Her accolades include The Drums 50 Under 30, Women Worth Watching in Digital, 2017. DCA Live's Trending 40 list of The New Power Women of Tech, 2018. Information Age's Future Stars of Tech shortlist in AI and Machine Learning, 2019. Lauren is a bright spot in the landscape of future technology. Check her out. Hackers. We at Hacker Noon are continually thinking of ways of showing our appreciation for you, our community. Enter the Noonies. The tech industry's greenest awards. Cast your vote in Hacker Noon's first annual Noonies at noonies.hackernoon.com, where everything's democratic and your votes are the only things that matter. Voting closes on August 16th and winners will be announced on August 20th. Vote for Hacker of the Year, most exciting startup, contributing writer of the year in every major category. The list goes on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Stay tuned to noonies.hackernoon.com for the results. And remember, you are Hacker Noon. Okay, so your LinkedIn profile says you're an analyst at GetApp. And do
0: you right. want to tell us
1: Do you want to tell us what GetApp is?
0: Sure. GetApp is TripAdvisor for B2B software and we are aimed at small and mid-sized business owners. So the idea is that if you are a smaller, mid-sized business owner and you need any type of software for your business, whether it's HR or marketing or sales software, you would go to getapp.com, you would read LinkedIn verified reviews of, hundreds of thousands of software tools. You would use our filtering to find software that has the features you need. And eventually you would choose the software that's the best fit for your business.
1: How are the reviews?
0: They skew towards the positive, which is something that is both good, but something that we're trying to mitigate because we've actually found that moderate reviews that are about three stars tend to have more depth to them. We're always looking to increase the quality of our reviews so that they can help buyers who are looking for software because saying that a product is awesome, it's nice that you like it, but it's not necessarily helpful for the reader and likewise saying that something's terrible could deter someone from buying that product but it doesn't get into the depths of why it's terrible so actually something we encourage software buyers to do is to look for reviews that are more in the middle because they tend to have more nuance about the product that can be more helpful to somebody who's in the buying stage so we actually encourage reviewers to uh, leave reviews if they have moderate feelings about a product because they often leave reviews that are more in-depth and specific about what they like or dislike about certain tools. And ultimately, those reviews give more value to software buyers than simply saying that a tool is awesome or terrible.
1: And it's how do you get them to, do, to leave those kinds of reviews?
0: We encourage people to leave reviews whenever they use certain products, and oftentimes on the content side, we leave calls to action at the end of articles encouraging readers to write reviews if they have used particular tools we're talking about but we and we typically are also internally looking for ways to leverage that and to prompt readers to leave more helpful reviews. We're working on a few things in engineering in that regard to help out. So it's an active problem that we're trying to solve internally.
1: Okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, any company has to sort of grow and figure out how to engage its audience in its dialogue. So, okay. And how long have you done that?
0: I've been with GetApp for three years now. GetApp was acquired by Gartner in 2015 and we joined the Gartner Digital Markets business unit within Gartner. So that unit is made up of GetApp, Captera, and Software Advice, which are all three different software review sites aimed at helping small and mid-sized business owners. And I joined the GetApp team in 2016 as a content editor and have stayed on the team since then. So it's been three years.
1: Okay. Is that it, is it customer-based global or is it regional?
0: It's mostly North America. We do have a sizable audience in Europe and Australia and GetApp is actually the international arm of Gartner Digital Markets. It's headquartered in Barcelona. So we have a lot of analysts out in that office that produce content in French and German and are actively trying to target those markets. So it is international, but we have a heavy focus on North America.
1: Okay, and what what do you how would you say let's just shift gears a little bit? How would you say the culture is there at GetApp? Do you enjoy working there?
0: I do. It's definitely it has the feel of a startup with with a structure of a large organization. That's how it was explained to me when I was interviewing for the job, and over my three years here, I've definitely found that to be the case. It's definitely a young environment with a lot of opportunity to grow, and the tech teams are working on really interesting solutions to the problems that we work on. So if you're interested in learning new frameworks and languages, it's a great place to be because the dev team is always growing and eager to teach people who want to learn what they're working on, even if those people don't work on the dev teams themselves.
1: Okay, yeah. And so what about you and your particular interests in terms of tech or technology, where do you where do your interests take you?
0: I first started at GetApp covering project management and accounting software. I started in project management because I previously worked at a product roadmap software company prior to coming to GetApp. And product management has some overlap with project management. They're certainly not the same thing, but I knew enough to get going on project management. What I found pretty interesting early on in my career at GetApp and Gartner was the opportunity to cover different artificial intelligence technologies. Gartner advises Fortune 500 businesses on how to adopt different AI technologies within their businesses, and those technologies are changing so quickly that if you're interested in them, there's a lot of opportunity to grow. And so on the side, while I was covering project management and accounting software, I was able to learn about AI and read Gartner research about different technologies and eventually last year I decided to get a certificate in AI for business strategy from MIT Sloan and that course went into depth about machine learning natural language processing and robotics specifically what those technologies are and then an overview of how you could adopt them within your businesses and i found that certification certification program really helpful in the work that i do now and it's really helped me grow my career within gartner in a great way
1: greetings hackers we at hacker noon are continually thinking of ways of showing our appreciation for you our community enter the noonies The tech industry's greenest awards. Cast your vote in Hacker Noon's first annual Noonies at noonies.hackernoon.com, where everything's democratic and your votes are the only things that matter. Voting closes on August 16th and winners will be announced on August 20th. Vote for Hacker of the Year, Most Exciting Startup, Contributing Writer of the Year in every major category. The list goes on at noonies.hackernoon.com. Stay tuned to noonies.hackernoon.com for the results. And remember, you are Hacker Noon. And you have a liberal arts degree, though, so you kind of come at it with a humanities angle,
0: for sure. So I I majored in media studies in college, pretty intent on going into journalism when I graduated. Unfortunately, about halfway through college, the recession hit, and that was about the same time that ad spend was shifting from news organizations and news sites over to digital websites like Facebook and Google, who now own an enormous total collective ad spend. And so the business model for a lot of journalism outlets collapsed, and what was a competitive industry before became very difficult to enter after the fact. And so when I graduated from school, I still was intent on pursuing a journalism Career and so I did freelance tech reporting for news sites like The Guardian and The Next Web from London, where I was based, and that's how I got into tech by learning about it as a journalist. But in hindsight, I think my media studies degree. I actually I thought at the time that they were going to prepare those degrees were going to prepare me for a career as a reporter. but I actually think they were better preparation for what I do now as a research analyst because that type of education primes you to look at a market find gaps within that market, ask critical questions about the status quo, and then give solutions for what to do differently. And I see a lot of parallels between my work as an analyst here and what I did academically. And so in hindsight, that humanities education was great preparation for a career in tech.
1: Mm -hmm. And so where do you see yourself headed, you know?
0: For now, I'd really like to keep doing what I'm doing. I think the good thing about covering AI, and specifically AI techniques like machine learning, is that they are constantly uh, adapting and changing. And so there's always something new to learn. And I'll never be short of content, especially now that I cover business intelligence software. BI is such a broad category. It covers big data, data mining, analytics, all of that. And so I'm very interested in diving into more detail in that industry, I'm also very interested in continuing my research into indirect bias within the data sets used to train AI algorithms, and so I'm hoping that I'll be able to gain more knowledge as I grow my career that way.
1: And that's a big deal. That sort of that little that kind of little pocket that people don't really think about so much in in this in the in the quest for artificial intelligence is the sort of how do we program into the artificial intelligence what our values are and who gets to say and what do they end up being?
0: That's definitely part of it. There are a lot of issues with bias in the data sets used to train machine learning algorithms. And a lot of them are not as obvious or clear cut as we make them out to be. So I think part of the reason people sometimes get defensive about bias in AI is that there's this implicit idea that it's being done intentionally, which would be a case of direct bias. So direct bias is when you are specifically programming an algorithm to discriminate against an end user based on that person's race or gender or sexuality. But the reality is that that's actually not by, definitely not the most common form of bias and it's not the main one that you have to watch out for as a developer. The more problematic aspect of bias is indirect bias because that's a byproduct of sensitive attributes like gender that correlate with non-sensitive attributes within the data set. And that's how you can get results that ultimately produce bias results for end users of color or of a certain gender. And that's also much, easy, much more difficult to spot throughout the engineering process, which makes it a complicated technical problem.
1: And the thing is learning kind of on its own too, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So it, what if it just sort of learns its own form of human destruction or whatever? I guess that's the main concern, right?
0: that's another big risk is that those algorithms only learn from the data that they're trained on. And so if that, Data is influenced by someone's personal ethics, then that is what it will learn and that's what it will reinforce. And another big technical problem on that front is that a lot of teams only monitor the data that their algorithms to receive in production and don't continue monitoring it in deployment. And that's a huge risk, especially for reinforcement learning, because the selling point with machine learning algorithms is that they are constantly taking in new information and refining their results to be more accurate based on the, the, that new information. But the type of data that are algorithm receives in production often differs from what it was exposed to in deployment and so if someone isn't monitoring that life cycle that's where bias can creep in as well
1: mm-hmm. yeah i could see that for sure and so it would be interesting to see how everything unfolds i mean a lot of the artificial intelligence is just almost miraculous you see these in the medical fields where they talk about where they talk about these algorithms that have access to every experience that every doctor has ever had all at once. And it looks at an x-ray and it says, well, this is the problem.
0: Yeah. And that's it with business intelligence in particular, you, uh, you asked earlier what I'm interested in doing next. And I think the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity in big data lies in healthcare, because the healthcare sector has an enormous amount of data on patients, which can be Highly valuable in terms of training algorithms, but there's a huge there are huge problems with that data, namely that it's highly sensitive and classified, which limits how tech teams can can use it to train algorithms. And then on top of that, a lot of the data is unstructured, and converting that data to a structured format often means that a lot of the nuance about patients would be lost. And finally, a lot of electronic health records are not are behind the times technologically speaking and not evolved enough to handle different algorithms and so there's enormous opportunity to use AI technologies to make faster better patient decisions and I think there is a lot of opportunity there but it's a big technical problem to solve as well and this is a case where you in many cases will have people's literal lives on the lines which means that the stakes are very high
1: incredible and it's like we're in a place right now it's this sort of i don't know what you call it this changing of the old into the new but it's happening so quickly like 80s 90s 2000s now and it's so it's like we can't keep up you know how do we adapt
0: yeah to an extent that's definitely true i think the thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the technologies themselves aren't necessarily new, but the volume of data that we have is mm. very new. Uh, so, And that's a, in large part due to an explosion in internet-connected devices like Alexa, Siri, things like that, which are constantly producing more and more data. And so we're at this point now where we have an astronomical amount of data, But tr- and business intelligence software is really designed to handle large amounts of data in a way that a tool like Excel cannot. The challenge is sifting through all of it is extremely time consuming, and figuring out what's most valuable can be very difficult to do. And so key- to your point, keeping up with the volume of data is another huge challenge
1: challenge for people. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that we're not up for the task, you know? I mean, we see all the problems seem to to constantly come up once we solve another one, another one comes up. So, Uh, and we, it seems it's interesting to see how the the human spirit seems so industrious in solving those problems as they come up, you know, it's, it'll be, it'll be incredible to see the decades coming up.
0: Yeah there will there will always be unintended consequences of technology and there will always be new problems to solve. I think it's encouraging though that Before the next AI wave, we're already having a broader conversation about bias in data sets and machine ethics because we've seen the consequences of what happens when big tech companies do not have those conversations up front. It forces them into a much more reactive position after their users have been harmed in some way, typically through data exposure. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that we're even having these broad conversations about what AI ethics are, because this is the right time to be having that conversation, not three to five years from now when AI is much more advanced and we have even more data at that point than we do today.
1: You know, and the question becomes who is listening to that conversation about ethics and who's not, you know? And I mean, from my perspective, you see countries like China, they, they just sort of, they're just doing their thing. And, it, and it's, you know, I, I think more power to them, there's not much we can do about it, but it's interesting to see who's actually in that conversation in terms of ethics and as opposed to just at a breakneck pace hurtling towards the unknown, you know.
0: That's true. And someone brought up a similar point in that regard not that long ago in a conversation that I went to about bias and AI in DC. They were saying that when we talk about AI ethics, the collective we we are implicitly referencing American slash Western ethics of what's right and wrong, but and, that, and that's largely a luxury we have because historically the U.S. has produced the tech, the most advanced AI technology. There, this person's point was: What happens if we are no longer the leader anymore? Whose ethics and whose values will be encoded into these products that will lead the future market? We're already having a, a conversation about. The, US, the role of the U.S. in the future economy and how uh, countries like China and India are on pace to maybe overtake the U.S. economy in future years? And so will that come with encoded ethics in certain products we don't know and it's it's challenging with china too because they're they're not always as forthcoming as the us about what they're working on or how much data they have we don't really know so we can't really give an accurate reading but they that the access that they have to data there is enormous and the progress that they've made specifically with tools like facial recognition is definitely something to keep an eye on because they are showing a lot of advancements.
1: Uh, smart people, you know, they've been around for what four thousand years. I don't know what the actual yep. figure is, but it's a long time, you know.
0: Yep, and there's also a lot more cohesion to put it nicely, between businesses and the government there due to the the communist uh, government that they have. And so then there's a lot more, you can assume then that there's a lot more data sharing between private entities and the government. And that's something that's interesting when you look at the European conversation around data ownership. Having lived in London for two years, there's a lot more overlap between private companies and the government in terms of regulation. And I think in many ways that's a positive thing, but something that naysayers often point out, which I think is a fair critique, is that the regulation to such a high extent can stifle innovation. And if you look at a lot of the European companies that have driven huge advancements in machine learning and other types of AI, they're often acquired by U.S. giants like Google. So Google acquired DeepMind a few years ago, and DeepMind is really known to be the most advanced ML producer out there. And so I read an op-ed in Bloomberg recently which said that if we if the Europe continues down that path of just selling all of their tech, their homegrown technologies to US companies, they're effectively relegating Europe's role as an AI leader to the US. Hmm.
1: So at some point, some I mean, I guess they'll do that to the point, whatever the market will bear, right? Until somebody stands up and says, "No, no, we'll, we'll we'll keep it here for however that whatever that looks like."
0: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see too what happens next year in 2020 when the presidential election is focusing on different issues. Because one of living in D.C., I can say one of the few issues that has bipartisan agreement is tech regulation. People on both sides of the political aisle agree that. Tech power is unchecked and should be bringed in. The question is: What A is what does that look like, and B, how high of a priority is it? And there, there is a real risk slash chance that it will get. Relegated to the bottom of the priority list during the election next year So we'll see there's a lot of talk about regulating tech in the US now But we'll see what comes to fruition during the campaign next year.
1: Yeah, you know You were sort of bringing some interesting points up and at least in my mind when I think about like the infrastructure That's crumbling in america that they made mm-hmm. a big stink about right the last election cycle and uh, And then I look at I saw this ted talk uh, on, on, It was like his war with china inevitable, right and uh, it was less about the war, at least the, the part that I, what blew my mind was, uh, so they did this project and it was in America, they had to build a bridge and it was going to cost, it was going to take, they said, six months, mm-hmm. six months come go by and no bridge, right? Not even close really. So it takes like three years for them to get this built bridge built, which they do. China, on the other hand, the exact same scenario about the same size project. They got it done in like 45 hours or something like that. You know, so the, it sort of raises this question about processes and what we, what we deem as valuable or, or at least from a community perspective, what's valuable for the whole, you know, and as opposed to, I don't know, I guess free market capitalism, I think has its beauty, right? There's an entrepreneurial spirit where you can be, but then you look how everything sort of grinds to a halt and then, but, and then China gets it done in two days.
0: Yeah, and I de- to your point, I, something that I noticed living in Europe is just the overall public sentiment towards government and how it differs from the states. So in the states, we definitely tend to be more of an individualist culture. Uh, if you look at the cr- origins of the of the U.S., where we tend to be inherently distrustful of government and kind of want our own autonomy, whereas in Europe, the collective overall sentiment towards the government regardless of your political views tends to be that the government is responsible for certain things like producing infrastructure in shorter time frames for doing things like giving health care and so because of that i think there they tend to be a lot more welcoming of regulation that overall americans would struggle to accept and so i think if you go back to the a, company, a country's sentiment towards government, a lot more of their actions make sense. So if politicians are or are not doing things that are confusing to someone, I think it always helps to look at what their constituents think on of those issues because oftentimes they're reflecting the beliefs of the people that they serve. And at the end of the day, they are elected to reflect the values of the people that they serve. And so if someone is decrying or advocating for government, gu- the government to do something or not it it typically relates back to a more broad sentiment towards government's role in providing services or not
1: at the moment, I guess if you on the very far right, it's no services at all, right? F- figure out figure it out on your own. And okay, there's maybe a beauty in that too. But or that's l-
0: better in the free market. Yeah. It's a, and right. so and I mean it's a it's a very complicated issue that spans a lot of different sectors. Uh but yeah, their take would be that the free market it does a better job of serving the people than government oversight. Uh, and that's very different than the than Europeans tend to think of uh, when it comes to their government because they they not only expect the government to provide certain services like tech regulation they demand it.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in terms of say healthcare, I think is a great example where uh, we failed. I think the most Americans in this country in terms of healthcare, but if you look around the world, people aren't failing them so much.
0: Yeah, and, it's, and on that point, when healthcare is also an interesting case study when you look at tech because DeepMind, which I mentioned earlier, has a very tight relationship with the National Health Service in England and they produce a lot of peer-reviewed research into using different machine learning technologies to advance different aspects of medicine. But again, DeepMind is owned by Google and there have been times over the past few years when DeepMind has gotten in some hot water because they inadvertently exposed Patient data, and so that goes back to the question of what's the role of regulation here, and what should be regulated. And it also gets complicated when you're bringing in a giant tech behemoth like Google to the conversation, because then Google, in theory, might have access to private patient data. So it's there are no easy answers to this question. Uh, it's very it's very complicated, but it is it's something that's interesting. I actually reported recently on a branch of the National Health Service that inadvertently exposed the names of people who have HIV by sending out a mass email to, about a support group, and they didn't protect the patient's identities. And so, and so now one of those people is doing uh, because they their identity was breached and they were exposed as having HIV. So that's another uh, just example of how in particular, you have to be really careful when you're dealing with healthcare data because the opportunities to solve problems and diagnose disease are enormous, but there it comes with a lot of challenges regarding patient data.
1: Yeah. And there's always seems to be about public response really to that breach. Whereas, you know, in other countries it might not be, so there might not be such a, a reaction to it. It's like, okay, well that's our data and, and do what mm-hmm. you got to do with it to make it okay. I just want to live longer.
0: Right. And I mean, let me put it this way. I don't think GDPR would ever go through in the U.S. I think that type of regulation in Europe, we there's a reason we haven't seen it in the U.S. yet. That's not to say that regulation isn't coming, but something as restrictive as GDPR. I don't believe that would happen in the States if for no other reason, I don't think it would have the public support to move forward politically.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating climate. So in in terms of direction, future direction, what you see in the future, I mean, blockchain seems to be a thing. At least everybody wants to make it a huge thing, right? Uh, Is it going to be a thing? What
0: do you think? I think think it's the latter. I think it's more that people want it to become a thing. Uh, I went to a conference a few years ago, uh, and it was focused on finance and the future of finance, and it felt more like a philosophy of blockchain conference that uh, all of the speakers were basically talking about what would what blockchain would be doing at their banks five to ten years down the line. But uh, no one at that conference had concrete examples of how they were using it in the present day. I have on occasion covered the ways that small and mid-sized business owners use blockchain. And a lot of times it's used for supply chains. And it specifically can be helpful for supply chain transparency. So a few years ago, I interviewed a small business owner who has a a business oriented around sustainable supply chains. So making consumers more aware of how their products are produced. And that was very, and blockchain was very helpful in that regard, because it allowed consumers to see how certain fish got from sea to plate, or how a t-shirt was made, and things of that nature. I tend to think that it is, I think its use cases are much more limited than with a technology like AI, which transcends really all industries, and business intelligence transcends all industries. What I've seen thus far with blockchain is that it's pretty limited to the finance and supply chain case stories and we don't have as many success stories regarding blockchain yet as we do with AI. So I'm not as bullish on it as a lot of other people seem to be. And I do tend to agree with what you said before, which is that people want to make it a thing more than it actually is a thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have to admit, I have hope, you know, for a, another way, you know what I mean? Uh, I think it would be exciting to, to see another way to come about, even if it's a, a kind of high System, I think that might be interesting. I like the idea of this sort of rock-solid, uh, incorruptible ledger database, basically, right? And it makes sense for supply chains or inventories, and you know, shrink would be a thing of the past, and you know, all of that. I think, I think that's a huge, important steps. So even in like healthcare, I think that is. Uh, I spoke with a guy, Noam Levinson. He talks about why not healthcare? It seems like it's almost ideally suited. We can't do more than seven transactions or fifteen transactions a second. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if we have to, if we have to tie it to the, to the financial system or to your, to your wallet, that it's a hard sell at this moment.
0: Yeah, I think there's certainly value in seeing a continuous ledger of transactions in healthcare. I don't know of any hospitals today that have done that. And I think you would still run into issues of transparency like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. But it's it's certainly possible and it's not beyond the realm of possibility that someone could figure out how to make it happen while keeping the data that needs to be private that way.
1: Yeah, interesting. It's like a whole industry should pop up around that specifically, even, yeah, you know, st- to solve that
0: problem. Yeah, and he- healthcare in particular always has had a history of being behind the times when it comes to tech, largely because of regulatory and privacy issues. So in that sense, this isn't a new problem. It has always struggled as a sector to keep up to more forward-thinking industries that can adopt digital technologies faster. But again, I think a lot of people are seeing the opportunity in healthcare to bring AI and blockchain solutions to the sector. And so it'll be curious in three to five years, whether it is still mostly unproven or if blockchain has really driven the industry ahead
1: right what if it's like 50 years even right it could be for i mean you never know basically it could be just an impossible technology to figure out until one day we stumble upon the secret
0: yeah and i think Uh, i mean even if we were to talk five years from now let alone 10 years i think we'll be having a completely different conversation about blockchain specifically but also ai part of what i tell people is that even if i had known in college that I wanted to wear technology, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that I wanted the job that I have now because technology has advanced so rapidly in that time period that there was really no way for me to have said that that, that this is what I wanted to be doing. And likewise, the technologies that will exist in five to 10 years are things that I can't even articulate really. Right now, because they're kind of beyond comprehension in that way. I have ideas about the directions they might be going in. But at the end of the day, there will be so much new technology that we can't even fathom in the short term.
1: Yeah, I mean, automation seems to be one of those things, this sort of, you know, whoa, kind of Grim Reaper sort of figure that's sort of hanging over the horizon.
0: It is. And I I do think that there's not enough nuance in that public conversation. So the main way that automation will transform the workforce is that it will change basically every job that we know of today, but it's much less likely to get rid of jobs or sectors completely. The long-term projections are that AI will ultimately produce three times as many jobs as it takes out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And again, that goes to the creation of a lot of jobs we can't even fathom yet because the market will dictate as years go on what the need is for these different technologies. Uh, I do think that there is a huge issue with education right now because we're seeing a ton of market demand for people with artificial intelligence skills as developers, analysts, product managers, et cetera. But education, like healthcare, is another sector that tends to be behind the times with technology technology and so there's a huge gap between the knowledge that people need and the way that classical education is preparing students for the workforce so I think that's a much more short-term risk is having huge demand for knowledge of technology and having traditional education not prepare students well enough for that
1: yeah I mean you told you me look at the education system too and it seems like there is a it, uh, you know, I didn't learn how to live a life in school at right. all. And that would have been nice to nice to know, I think, instead of having to figure it out after I got done with school and I was in debt and all of that stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it sort of raises the question, at least for me, how it is we, what it is we go about teaching. And why. And, you know, I mean, if you look at all the generations coming up, they're they're growing up with a device in their hands, you know, looking directly into the screen pretty much all day long. And then and it's, it's, it would stand to reason a natural extension of that would be capacity with that technology.
0: Right. One of my colleagues at Gartner a few years ago wrote a research report called Generation AI. And it was basically about people born in 2010 or later, because that is the generation that is true They're true digital natives in the sense that they don't know a world without the iPhone and they don't know a world without Facebook. They don't remember what life was like before those technologies. And so they grow from the time their infants grow up with screens. And that has a huge influence on how they see the world and how they solve problems. But they also have such comfort with this technology that it's not scary to them. And that leads to opportunities to to see how we can expand beyond just using technology and teach people of all persuasions how to build it.
1: Yeah, what'll come out of it, I think will be unknown, unknowable even, right? Ultimately, I think that uh, such immersion in the technology, it'll be interesting to see what kind of comes out of the next generations, this generation AI. I haven't heard that before, that's that makes a lot of sense.
0: For, it is for sure interesting yeah to see how they'll go from being users to creators of new technologies and drive it forward uh, because it's I don't know if you've ever seen a baby with an iPhone, but it's a little scary how naturally it comes to them. I oh, mean yeah, they don't even they don't even give it a second quick, thought. Right.
1: Yeah. just Oh, there's a thing. Ooh, I'll touch that, you know.
0: But I've heard people say that, you know, a lot of people say that coding, learning to code is like learning a new language. And I actually think that's a perfect illustration of that principle, because they say if you want someone to be bilingual, you should teach them two languages or more before they're two years old, because that's when they're taking in so much information and so being bilingual just comes naturally to a toddler much more so than if I try to be bilingual at my own age as an adult and similarly you know that ex- there's definitely there are risks that come with exposing a, ch- a child that's very young to a lot of screens one of the positives though is that they develop familiarity with it and then can potentially we would hope use that for positive effect later on.
1: Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, we don't know what's going to happen really. Like we go, oh man, like television is going to rot your brain or whatever. Right. So the devices are going to rot your brain, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll just grow up with it in integrated into their processes, you know, like, wow, I can't imagine the depths to which that will be the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a little scary to think about. Uh, It's scary to think about what very young kids and babies are exposed to. Um, But like I said, the silver lining there is that. The familiarity can perhaps be put towards something oh, yeah. that benefits the
1: people. I'm not nervous about it at all, and in fact, I think I think it should be pretty fascinating to see what what transpires. You know, and I'm curious about what uh, what's going on around the world too, because the youth around the world is growing up with devices in their hands too. You know, right. there's a whole there's a whole sort of this flux of individuals coming together in a global community at, at the internet level, mm-hmm. where they Maybe. connect in that space. So.
0: Yeah, and that was a focus of the research that my colleague put out as well, was talking about how the digital world will, be, uh, will continue to evolve as a place of collaboration and that people from around the world will be able to work together to solve problems. And that actually sounds like a pretty basic concept because if you look at how the world works changed, Even in the last five to 10 years, you increasingly have more people working from home, working around the world, being hired to work for a company in San Francisco when they live in Asia. And so the technology that we have now fosters collaboration in working environments that were impossible when our parents were growing up. Mm -hmm. Cool.
1: Okay. So let's see. Any closing thoughts?
0: I think we've mostly covered it all. I am mostly keeping an eye, like I said, on AI and healthcare and and specifically looking at the data implications of that. So I'm excited to see what comes up in the next couple of years on that front.
1: Mm -hmm. Awesome. And where can people reach you?
0: They can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, under my full name. So I'm on Twitter at Lauren Maffeo and people can feel free to find me on LinkedIn as well. And if they'd like to read my writing at GetApp, they can go to getapp.com for the main site. And then I cover business intelligence research for GetApp. So if readers want to find me, they can go to the site.
1: All right. And you're going to publish on Hacker Noon soon. That's what's coming. That's coming up. Uh, Yes, I will. That's imminent. Cool. Looking forward to seeing you on there. We very much appreciate you being on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: That was Lauren Maffeo. A simple Google search will result in her social media and internet presence. You can also find her on hackernoon.com slash at Lauren dash Maffeo. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and be sure to follow us on social media. You can check out what's going on with the Hackernoon community at community.hackernoon.com. For the Hackernoon podcast, I'm Derek Bernard. Thanks for tuning in. Over and out. <laughs>